David Cullen Bain, the Dunedin man found guilty of murdering his family, appeared to go into a state of shock on hearing the guilty verdict. He started saying black hands, that they were taking them away, black hands. Do you find the accused guilty or not guilty? Not guilty. <laughs> I want to assure you, I did not kill my The Dunedin morning was very cold. Motorists watched out for ice and early risers dressed up warmly. David Bain, a fit, gangly 22-year-old, hurried around his paper route, delivering the day's newspaper. He then ran up his steep street to his ramshackle home. A horror awaited him. Within minutes, he had discovered his family dead. They had all been shot in the head with a .22 rifle. At nine minutes past seven on that Monday morning, June the 20th, 1994, David Bain rang 111. This can help you. They're all dead. What's the matter? They're all dead. I came home they're all dead. Whereabouts are you? Um, um, Every street. Or every street. 65 every street. They're all dead. Who's all dead? My, my family, they're all dead. Hurry up. It's okay. Every street that runs off, off Somerville Street? Yes. yes. How much phone number are you calling from? 454. Four five four two five two seven two five two seven. And your last name? Bain. Bain. Okay. We're on our way. Okay, Mr. Bain. It will be there very shortly. The dead were David's mother, Margaret, fifty. His father, Robin, fifty-eight. His sisters, Arawa, nineteen, and Laniet, eighteen and his younger brother Stephen, aged 14. It was soon clear that either Robin or David had to be the killer. Both were described as caring and kind, and neither seemed prone to violence or insanity. But one or the other had to be responsible. And in that lay a controversy that still rages in New Zealand today. I'm Martin Van Bainen. I've worked as a journalist for nearly 30 years and have spent many years trying to make sense of the evidence in this case and the debates it has sparked. In this 10-part podcast series, we look again at who was the killer in this complex and tragic family murder. David Bain was convicted of murdering the five members of his family after a trial in 1995, but after a long campaign by supporters, he was retried in 2009 and found not guilty. After 23 years, it's easy to overlook the horror that police and emergency staff faced in the Bain House on the morning of the shootings. So let's go back to that cold morning in Anderson's Bay in Dunedin. The first police on the scene at 65 Every Street are Constables Kim Stevenson and Jeff Wiley. They are already inside the front gate, struggling to see in the pitch black when Sergeant Murray Stapp pulls up. It's about 7.20 a.m. Stevenson and Wiley move very slowly up the path, 
and when they get to the porch, Stapp and Constable Les Andrew join them. They are shut out of the house because the distressed David Bain, who is lying on the floor in his bedroom, won't open the locked door. Stevenson gives it three solid kicks, but it doesn't budge an inch, despite the house looking like a strong wind could blow it over. Stapp breaks a pane in the door with a bit of firewood from the stack on the veranda. He cleans the glass out of the frame with his revolver and reaches through to open the door from the inside. As they burst through, the officers have to push aside some spears and curios which have fallen over in the hallway. They don't notice, but the day's newspaper, the Otago Daily Times, is on a cabinet in the hallway. It shows that despite the carnage the police will find in the house, somebody has performed a very mundane daily task. Stapp takes up the story and his evidence to David's second trial. When you got into that room, what did you observe? Uh, the accused was on the floor at the end of the bed, and this, uh, he was just inside the window, so that would place him pretty well between where the window was marked on the plan and the, where the letter B is marked. He was on the floor in the fetal position. Um, I ran up to him. Um, I had my revolver in the extended position. Um, ran up to him. He was crying. Uh, addressed me that uh, they are all dead, they are all dead, or words to that effect. Constable Andrew stands by the door and raises his revolver to cover Wiley and Stapp as they go down the hallway. Stevenson asks David, how many live in the house? There are six of us, David says. Stevenson goes into the room opposite David's bedroom and finds Robin Bain on the floor and a .22 rifle lying beside him at right angles to his body. He is fully clothed and has one bullet wound just near his left temple. The first body has been found. Wiley shines his torch into the next room on the left. There's one in here, he says. Laniat Bain is lying under a duvet on a bed positioned against the far wall of the room. She has three bullet wounds to her head, one through the top and two close to her left ear. On the right of the hallway is another room with a curtain across the entrance. Stapp pushes it aside with the barrel of his revolver and in the subdued light sees the body of a woman lying on the bed under a thick duvet. He has discovered the body of Margaret Bain. She has been shot once just above her left eye. In Margaret's room, Sergeant Stapp sees another doorway and thinks it must lead to a wardrobe or a dressing room and doesn't investigate further. With three bodies found on the upper floor, the officers look for more. Between David's room and the room in which Laniat lies dead is a staircase leading to the lower level of the house. Stapp and Wiley slowly follow the stairs down, and when they get to the bottom, they turn right into a dirty kitchen with dishes piled up in the sink. Stapp covers Wiley as he goes right again and disappears. Wiley goes down a narrow passageway, lined with shelves, groaning with bottled fruit and other preserves. He comes to another doorway which is covered by two curtains, a net curtain 
and a curtain made of metal rings. This is what he told David's second trial in 2009. What did you do when you got to the curtain? I pulled the curtain back and, and looked into that room and saw the body of another female on the floor in there. Do you recall how she was positioned? Uh, yes, there was a couple of steps down into that room and from where I was standing, um, she was uh, sort of bent back as though on her knees but bent back and looking straight towards the uh, doorway where I was standing. She had quite an obvious um, wound to her forehead. Arwa has been shot once, the bullet entering the right side of her forehead. She is wearing a green jersey and pink pyjamas, and a track of blood spots can be seen on the outside of her right thigh and across her lower leg. As police walk through the kitchen to the wash house and bathroom, they don't hear anything except David wailing upstairs and then talking to Constable Andrew. Stapp is listening intently and would later tell David's second trial. And just on the issue of noises, when you came into the house, uh, what was it like? What was it like for you? What were your, how were your senses? Um, okay, uh, good question. Um, the, in a situation like that, um, a police officer, and on this occasion I was no different, um, our sense, my senses were heightened. I had absolutely no idea what I was dealing with. I had no idea whether um, there was anyone there who was a threat to me or a threat to the um, accused, as he is now. Um, so... Um, your sense of hearing is acutely heightened, your sense of smell is heightened, um, and uh, vision, um, although there are um, in situations of stress um, like this and as many other situations, your, um, your vision often uh, tunnels somewhat, but um, that's also heightened, um, heightened as well, and, and it's because of the not the real danger, but, but not knowing what the danger is, if, if any. So um, all of your senses are just working overtime, if you like. You have a pistol in your hand? Yes, I did. A revolver, yes. Sorry, revolver. Um, safety is all, presumably? Uh, revolvers don't have a safety. Um, some pistols or semi-automatic pistols do, um, but not this particular revolver. Stepp and Wiley go back upstairs and Wiley yells out that they have found four bodies. Stevenson calls back there should be six in the house, including David. Wiley goes to recheck the downstairs area, while Stapp goes into Margaret Bain's room for another look. Behind the curtain, which Stapp initially thought was a wardrobe, he sees another bedroom. And what did you do uh, at the doorway? Uh, leaned in the doorway. Um, I could see the body of um, who I now know to be Stephen Bain on the floor. Um, because of the way he was lying, I couldn't actually see his face. Um, he was lying pretty well feet towards me. Um, quite clearly dead. Um, I then retreated from the room. Like the rest of the house, the room was very untidy. 
And um, although I didn't think of it at, think of it in this context at the time, thinking about it later, um, there'd quite clearly been a struggle in the room. A lot of blood. Um, and at that point I retreated from the room back to the hallway. Stephen has three bullet wounds. One in the top of his head, and the other bullet has gone through the palm of his left hand and then cut a furrow on the right side of his head. The officers have now discovered five bodies. It already looks to them like a murder-suicide because of the rifle found next to Robin. The tragedy is unfolding. David Bain is the only family member who escaped just by being on his paper run, it seems. David remains on the floor in his room, apparently incapable of talking or responding. Constable Andrew has stayed at the entrance to David's room and is struck by the musty, rotting smell in the house. He hears Stapp calling out about finding Stephen, the fifth body, and then notices David starting to shake like he is having a fit and sees him fall backwards between the bed and the wall. He also notices something odd about David's eyes as he tells David's second trial. Yes. Now, did you observe any um, movements in his body? Yes, his body was shaking, and then he, then he um, fell backwards. How long was he shaking for before he fell backwards? Oh, it was 10, 12 seconds. And where did he fall to? Um, in between the bed and the blue article there. Now, prior to him falling backwards, um, did you see his eyes? Yes. Yeah. What did you see? <coughs> uh, they're just normal. Did you see any change in them? No, I didn't. Did you think anything of that at the time? I just thought it was, um, if it, yeah, it was a bit strange. If he was having a, a shaking and fit type thing, his eyes would react as well. His eyes would react as well? Yeah. And you, you base that on what? Um, I've seen people um, have a fit before. I then uh, went into him and uh, pulled him out from where he was and then placed him in a recovery position. Uh, left leg up and left, leg, left arm over on the floor. He was facing towards the bed then, back towards the bed. And you put him in a recovery position, yes. is that right? Yes. Did you do any other check on him? Well, I checked his pulse. How easy was it? for you to get him out from between the bed and the wall? Uh, it was easy. He didn't get caught on anything or it wasn't difficult. to didn't have to move anything to get him out. And what was he like when you got him out and placed him in the recovery position? Um, he just went, just, he was limp. Was he still shaking? No. Whether David hits his head in Andrew's manoeuvre is a question for later as is David's apparent fit. A top-notch piece of journalism. Compelling listening. White silence. An airliner takes off from Auckland Airport on a sightseeing trip to Antarctica. A few hours later, all 257 people on board are dead. Listen for free in Apple and Spotify now. Search for white silence. Hi, Adam Dudding here. If you're enjoying Black Hands, I think you might enjoy another stuff podcast, The Commune. 
a gripping 12-part documentary series that unravels the secrets of Centrepoint, the notorious free love commune led by Bert Potter. You've already been welcome to Centrepoint. Some of you have had a good look around. The commune doesn't just tell the black and white story, it delves into the shades of grey. He was into sex every day. Discover the nuanced, complex tales of former residents and those touched by Centrepoint's controversial legacy. There was a lot of things like that where you'd think, what the f***? The Commune podcast from Stuff. Listen today at stuff.co.nz slash the commune or wherever you listen to podcasts. Two St John ambulance staff are called into Czech David. Ambulance officer Raymond Anderson ministers to David who starts shaking and shivering again. He finds David's vital signs normal and is what Anderson describes as rousable. He told the jury in the second trial... The visual and physical examination, I couldn't find any signs of injury, blood loss, uh, deformity, any of those uh, sorts of things that would give you an indication that you're looking at any sort of trauma at all. Um, and um, I did the, uh, the quick bass run recordings, which showed that, uh, as I said, of a, a normal resting person. Also uh, tried to establish the level of consciousness, uh, because as the patient was presenting um, as if unconscious, um, uh, I was able to determine that the patient, um, um, through the, uh, uh, the method of, of using the eyelid um, or um, reactions of the eyes um, to show that the patient was in actual fact you know, quite conscious. If somebody's um, resting with their eyes closed and you just brush your finger across the eyelashes, it will always flutter. Uh, if did you do this on this occasion? Yes, I did. And what happened? And the, I got a fluttering uh, or a flickering of the eyelashes, eyelids. Which indicated to you what? That the patient was not unconscious. The shaking, what observation did you make of the patient of him shaking? The, the observations were that of a coordinated um, shaking or movement of the limbs. Why do you say coordinated? It's different from a, a seizure activity in that uh, the best way to describe it is that um, uh, both arms and legs were sort of moving in unison or in a coordinated fashion, whereas a seizure is um, an uncoordinated violent um, electrical activity in the brain which can uh, cause any muscle to be contracted at any time. I've seen similar presentations um, and they have been um, a person who is trying to get us to believe that they are having a fit, but in actual fact we're able to uh, determine that they're not. And how often would you have come across that sort of situation? It's not a, a regular basis, but we do have um, some of our regulars in town, the, um, quite often the uh, psychiatric people who are, are being um, uh, uh, put into the community. Uh, we sometimes find them doing that. So two people who are attending to David feel he is faking. They hold the thought as more people arrive at the house. Constable Wiley leads Cray Womble, the Chief Ambulance Officer for the Otago region, to each of the bodies so Womble can look for any signs of life. Womble checks Robin and is surprised at the warmth of his body because to the ambulance officer, he looks, as he says later, very dead. He thinks Robin has probably died within the last hour to 90 minutes. The other bodies are also warm, but not nearly as warm as Robin. Robin appears to have been the last to have been shot. Detective Constable Terry Van Turnhout arrives just after 8 o'clock 
and takes over watching David from Liz Andrew. He is told to record anything David says or does. David is quiet, just lying on the floor, and looks to Van Turnout as though he is in shock. Van Turnout records David saying several things, which are now read by an actor. I've got to get up. I go to university. I study music. I sing. And about 9am? Black hands are coming to get me. David asks for his glasses, and Van Turnhout sees a damaged spectacles frame on a nearby chair, and one lens lying beside the frame. Detective Kevin Anderson arrives at 11 minutes past eight. He goes to the front room of the lounge where Robin lies dead on the carpeted floor. Off the lounge is a sunroom, which has been turned into a computer room. Two green curtains, slightly apart, separate the room from the lounge area, and blood and brain tissue can be seen splattered over the lower part of the green velvet material. An upholstered wooden upright chair with a collapsed seat is the closest bit of furniture to the curtains. In the computer room, a yellow lamp is on the floor. The computer is on, and a sentence can be seen on the screen. It says, Sorry, you are the only one who deserved to stay. So police have found five bodies, and with the rifle beside Robin and the computer message, there seems to be only one conclusion. Meanwhile, police back at Dunedin Police Station are swinging into action. After a briefing at which he is appointed officer in charge of the scene, Detective Sergeant Milton Weir arrives at 65 Every Street about quarter to ten, about 45 minutes before David is carried from the house to an ambulance. It's the first time Weir has been in charge of a homicide scene. He is determined to make a good job of it and believes it will be an excellent training exercise. He inspects the outside of the property and briefly looks into the caravan in which Robin spent his nights and notes the light and the radio are on. Robin's comma van is parked on the right of the house if looking from the street. Weir describes the house in this audio clip from David's second trial. It was a large, large house, um, weatherboard construction, iron roof. Um, it was in very poor disrepair on the outside. Um, there were areas of the house that uh, obviously some makeshift repairs had been made to. Um, the guttering was in very poor condition. Um, and the interior of the house? The interior of the house was uh, extremely cluttered, um, untidy in a lot of the rooms. Uh, a lot of items lying around. Um, it um, had a bad smell. During the course of the search over those next few days, because of the smell, were there any measures taken in regard to that by those searching? Um, not because of the smell, but when we were conducting the searches, a lot of the time we wore dust masks. Um, Sometimes we would drop eucalyptus drops into the dust masks, for example, to mask the smell. Milton Weir is concerned about the number of people that have already been through the house and arranges for plastic sheeting to be brought in to cover the floors of each room to protect any evidence. This delays Dunedin pathologist Alexander Dempster, who has been waiting unhappily outside since about 10am. He begins his examination of the bodies about midday. 
He looks at the bullet wounds and other features of the scene, such as where the shooter would have been when firing the shots. The police have a procedure to go through. A detective is appointed as officer in charge of each homicide scene and each of the bodies. Preliminary searches start. Once Dempster has finished his examinations and potential evidence protected, the bodies are removed. Margaret's room gives detectives an idea of what they will face in later weeks in searching the house and securing exhibits. Detective Jennifer Glover later describes the room as disordered, cluttered, untidy, dirty, dusty. The room contains six sets of drawers, two wardrobes, a wall cabinet, and boxes of clothes piled on top of each other. The curtains over the window are ripped and dirty. Every surface has piles of various items. While Margaret's room is a mess, it is relatively blood-free. Not so Stephen's room, which is also packed with furniture and general household items. Exceptionally riveting and shocking at the same time. Gone fishing. A man disappears and a woman goes to prison for 15 years for his murder despite swearing she'd never even met him. Listen for free in Apple and Spotify now. Search for Gone Fishing. I love this podcast. It's informative, interesting and suspenseful. A man disappears with no crime scene, no weapon and no body. How could his longtime friend be arrested and charged with murder? The Trial. Listen for free in Apple and Spotify now. Search for The Trial. Detective Michael Bracegirdle is appointed officer in charge of Stephen's body. He told David's second trial... I uh, conducted a preliminary examination of young Stephen. Uh, I noted that he was wearing uh, black underpants. I noted that he had a white T-shirt over the upper part of his body. Only one arm was in a sleeve of that shirt. Uh, He was covered in blood. Uh, Blood was smeared uh, around his head and face, uh, down his arms, uh, along a leg. Uh, It soaked through his hair. Uh, There was what appeared to be a gunshot wound in the palm of his hand, uh, as depicted. It was apparent that um, Stephen had lost a lot of blood as he lay in that position. Uh, And there was blood spots present on the carpet under his body. I noted that the uh, T-shirt around Stephen's neck had caused uh, significant abrasions to his neck, like he had been scragged. I noted that uh, Stephen's fingers were partially retracted, as if having grabbed something. And that's the way they remained. Was a post-mortem examination carried out at that time or at some later time? No, later that evening. Do you have a note of the time of the post-mortem? Yes, at uh, 10.42 that evening. During the examination itself, did you notice any other particular injuries or abrasions or scraps or whatever? Yes, I did. Um, He had a deep uh, furrowed wound along the top of his skull. It had cut deeply uh, into his scalp. 
and had bled profusely. He also had a, a bullet wound to the top of his skull. I also noted the very particular diamond-shaped wounds to his back. When you say wound, what, what do you mean? Um, deep abrasions or bruises. During the course of the examination, did Dr. Dempster examine the hands of particular fingernails of the deceased? Yes, he did. And as a result of that, did you receive anything from the pathologist? Yes, I did. Dr. Dempster handed me a number of short woolen fibres that had been attached to Stephen's fingers. Later tests show Stephen has been strangled with his T-shirt and then shot. It becomes obvious he has fought with the shooter after first being wounded by the shot which grazed his head. During the struggle, he has clawed at the shooter and got the woolen fibres under his fingernails. Stephen's room also gives up other clues. When the mattress of his bed is removed, police find a white, blood-stained right-hand glove which is inside out. It has a lot of blood on the palm and thumb. And under a green school jersey with a small blood smear around the crest, police find the gloves pair, also bloodstained. The formal type gloves belong to David, who bought them recently for a ball. The killer has obviously worn the gloves. Police also find two pieces of Stephen's skin on the floor. A lens that fits the glasses frame found in David's room is discovered three days after the shootings. This is Milton Weir at David's second trial. Next item was a small boy's green wind jacket. That's the item that you can see in this photograph between the suitcase and the, the two, the pair of running shoes. So it's this green item here. The pair of running shoes that's on the shoe rack. Correct. Yes. Then the, um, the two running shoes were seized here on the shoe rack. Then the shoe rack itself was seized. You can see photographer's arrows um, in the middle of the shoe rack indicating blood. And on the soles of those white shoes as well. Yes. That's correct. The next item seized was a black ice skate. I noted that it had a very small uh, amount of blood on the front metal blade. That's this item here that you can see between the suitcase and the white shoes and with the green jacket on top of it. And the next item seized was a uh, lens from a pair of optical glasses. I've recorded that it appeared to be the left-hand lens. And that was located in this location here once the ice skate boot had been removed. We come then to David's room, which is considerably neater than most of the other rooms in the house. It's thoroughly searched the day after the shootings. Live bullets are scattered over the floor, and about a thousand rounds of ammunition are found in his wardrobe. The trigger lock to the .22 rifle is also on the floor. David's bed is covered by a light pastel duvet and a large white sheepskin. The Sony Walkman he used on his paper run is lying on the bed. It contains a homemade tape of songs by pop group Queen, including the song Who Wants to Live Forever. 
Laniette's favourite. The most prominent poster on his wall is of a golden retriever or Labrador with her puppy. Downstairs, the bathroom and laundry also have stories to tell. The washing machine, a top-loading hoover, has a smear of what looks like blood on the left-hand side of the top rim and a load of washed and spun clothes inside it. Among the garments in the washing machine are a green woolen jersey, a pair of pale blue track pants, a black skivvy, a red sweatshirt, a pair of sports socks and a pair of work socks. Next to the washing machine is a washing basket, which also has a range of clothes, including a long-sleeved sweatshirt with Opera Otago printed on the chest and gondoliers on the back. The right upper arm is bloodstained. Shelves by the washing machine go from the floor to the ceiling, and above the washing machine is a container of Raleigh's Willpower washing powder with a fresh, watery blood smear on the lid of the container. A tiny speck of blood can be seen in the wash basin, and items on the shelves, including a pink cloth, a swimming cap, and an old facial dust mask, also have blood on them. In fact, blood is all over the house. As the killer has moved through the rooms, his bloody jersey, as it turns out, it is the green jersey in the washing machine, has brushed against various doorways and other surfaces. There is blood on the door jamb leading into Stephen's room, and other smears can be seen on the door jams of Margaret's and Arawa's rooms. A small smear of blood is found on the light switch in Laniette's room and the light switch in the stairwell. Police also discover five footprints made by a bloody sock leading from Margaret's room into the hallway and in and out of Laniette's room. Extensive searches also take place outside the house. The caravan where Robin slept has bunks and on the top bunk they find a spent shell and in the same area, a live .22 shell under a book called the Golden String. They find 20 old and dusty spent .22 shells, an arms code, several radios, and three electric shavers. Two books lie on a box beside Robin's bed. One is a book of murder stories by Agatha Christie entitled Five Classic Murder Mysteries, and the other is a book called Death of a Dolphin. The Agatha Christie book contains a story called Death Comes at the End. The story is about a father apparently killing his family. In fact, the father is innocent. And the killer is his son who wants his inheritance. In later episodes, it will become clear why some of the clues mentioned become so important and so difficult. For instance, what did David mean by black hands? What on earth is that about? Why would the killer wear gloves? And can it just be a coincidence that a lens from the damaged glasses frame found in David's room is found in the room where the killer fought desperately with Stephen? How will David explain that? And could David really have pretended to have a fit? This episode has touched on the major finds in the scene, but there are others, and they will emerge throughout the series. In the next episode, We'll look at the Bain family and the background to the murders. I'm Martin Van Bainen. I look forward to you joining us for the next episode.
This podcast is a joint stuff and tandem studios production. Written and presented by Martin Van Bainen, audio engineered and co-produced by Brett Robertson, and produced by Dave Dunlay and Kamala Heyman. A man disappears with no crime scene, no weapon, and no body. How could his longtime friend be arrested and charged with murder? The trial. Listen for free in Apple and Spotify now. Search for The Trial. An airliner takes off from Auckland Airport on a sightseeing trip to Antarctica. A few hours later, all 257 people on board are dead. White Silence. Listen for free in Apple and Spotify now. Search for White Silence.